in the beginning, it was I found it very difficult. I found it difficult to get out of bed in the morning, but I had to get up, and I used to get up and I'd put my makeup on because that was my face. And I went out to face the world. Now, some days I never made it to the shops. I made it, you know, halfway there, and I'd have to come home. This is the park where I used to walk um, after the incident, and I came here about four or five times a week. And it was a great place to contemplate what had happened and uh, sort it out in your head and give you some peace and peace of mind and to get away from the home. Um, if you look down from this hill uh, on your left-hand side there, that's where um, the incident took the incidents took place. And um, I live over to the right from here behind those trees. Uh, you can see the houses there, um, up there on the hill, and I live over there. So, um, normal suburban residence uh, where people live and uh, hope and pray and rear their children as best they can and uh, hope that they'll grow up to be good, responsible adults. That's what I hoped for mine. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out the way I hoped. Back in her semi-D, Marie prepares dinner in the kitchen. On the walls are many family photographs. In one is a small boy with dark, wavy hair, arms round a blonde, chubby toddler. Both are smiling widely. My second son is about a year and a half on this one, and my other son is about six. They were lovely boys at that stage, absolutely. The youngest boy absolutely loved his older brother, you know, he used to follow him around everywhere. And um, he was very gentle, very, 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 very um, timid, quiet, gentle boy. And uh, never did anything wrong, you know, he was, he was a model child, actually. He was a beautiful little boy, you know, and never gave me any trouble. His table manners from the time he was about three were excellent. And he would be, the other fellow was kind of a bit of a rogue and he would eat with his fingers and he was horrified, he used to be horrified that he wouldn't use his knife and fork and if you told him, if you brought him to someone's home and said sit there on that chair, he wouldn't move. He'd sit on the chair, he wasn't one of these kids that would go in and take all the ornaments down or pull things around. He always did what he was told, he just sat there and, you know, was, was good and everybody loved him because he was so good, you know, you could bring him anywhere with you, you could bring him into any restaurant, you know, he never embarrassed you or where the other fella <laughs> would have had everything off. He'd be nearly sitting on the table. Or running. I remember we used to go shopping with him when he was about three, I suppose, and he'd be under the racks of the clothes in the shops. And um, my other son would be so embarrassed, you know, trying to hold his hand and tell him not to do things like that. But, he, you know, one, but both of them were different from each other, as you can see. You know, even in appearance, their, one was very slim and the other was a little bit chubby. But uh, he should have been a little bit more into devilment, I think, you know. But uh, that was just him. He was just, you know, he was an only child for, for six years, and or six, yeah, around six years. And um, he was loved, and he was always with adults, I think. And that's how he, he, but he was just a good child. You know, he was, he just never needed to be bold. He never, he wasn't wild. He just, he didn't run. He always just walked around, and he was just gentle. That was his personality. You get married and you have a family and you wear them as best you can and if anyone told you that this was going to happen in your in my family particularly, I would have been horrified. Luckily we were married for a long time before this happened. 
So I remember saying to him, like, you must be sorry you ever married me when this happened. And he said, no, I'm not, because he said you were a very good mother. And, you know, I never ever, he never ever blamed me. And that's usually what people do in tragedies. They blame each other. But I have to say, he never ever blamed me. And I never blamed him. I knew he was the best father he could have been. And I was the best mother. And it just happened. So we had, we couldn't blame each other. Because if I had it all over again to do, I couldn't see what I could do different. I'd have to do exactly the same thing I did before. I remember, like, like even when he was born, um, he he had pneumonia when he was born and he was in an incubator and I remember my mother-in-law saying oh they're sending him home to die he looked so frail and so weak and and we nursed him and we nurtured him you know and then he grew up to do this hello hello how are you that's good that's great had you got a good day yeah Marie is talking to her son, the eldest one in the photograph. He rings every evening at the same time. It is a phone call from prison. No more cooking. When is that? This week, is it? Oh, <laughs> so you have to starve on a midterm break, too. My son wasn't only interested in children. He wanted a relationship with a girl of his own age, but couldn't see this happening for him. He was too shy and too... more than shy. It was kind of a, a sickness with him, this... The shyness that he had, for want of a better word. And he didn't think he would have the courage to ask a girl out or the courage to form a relationship with a girl. And this is why. This is the only explanation I have for what he did. These are his, his own words. Like, he really wasn't interested in children. It just happened. His friends were starting to go out with girls and some of them, one of them, his best friend, got engaged and he wanted this for himself. And he couldn't see it happening. He couldn't see. It was a terror he had inside him to go up to a girl and ask her out. And he had been rejected on a couple of occasions. And I suppose this contributed to the way he was feeling. And this is the only explanation I have for what happened. A 23-year-old Dublin man was in Mountjoy Prison last night after being charged with the rape and sexual assault of two young girls. The man who was arrested by Garthi on Thursday and questioned by detectives was charged with the false imprisonment and rape of a 12-year-old girl and the false imprisonment and sexual assault of a 10-year-old girl. Both attacks took place during daylight hours. Now, I know he didn't only destroy his own life, he also destroyed those little girls' lives and I hope that they are fine and, and I never stop thinking about them and I wouldn't diminish the fact that what he did was terribly, terribly wrong. And what ages were the girls? They were 12 and 11, I think, around that age. Did he know them? No, they were strangers. So um, it just, he was going to work and it happened. The first attack, I think that was in the afternoon sometime, but second, the second attack was early in the morning, around eight o'clock in the morning or half past eight. She was on, on her way to school and he was on his way to work. And that's when it happened. So um, I didn't hear until uh, later on that day. I heard something on the radio about uh, a lad being picked up in town. And I rang him in his job to say somebody had been picked up because it was well known around the area that this had happened. And uh, he wasn't in work and something dropped inside me. And um, there was a knock on the door and I was hearing my own. And with that, my daughter came in and about six 
uh, one police lady and six police officers came in, uh, detectives I suppose they were, and um, they said, they showed me a, a piece of paper, obviously a warrant, I didn't look at it, I, I didn't know what it was, I I was in total shock and they asked me to sit down and I couldn't sit, I wasn't able, I physically wasn't able to sit, all I could do was pace, the only thing I, it reminded me of was uh, when you're in labour, when you can't sit and you can't stand, you just have to walk up and down, uh, trying to ease this awful pain that you have. And uh, uh, they were quite nice to us. Um, the police, the police woman, took my daughter in here into the sitting room and sat her down and asked her about different things. And I felt that she had to grow up so fast. She was too young to have to suffer this. And um, she was extremely good. I remember making tea for for all the officers. And she was at a, such a tender age. I couldn't contact my husband. He was at a, a meeting. And the detective said, will they go for him? And I said, oh, no, don't go for him. I couldn't see him being picked up and down and put at home. I rang my other son. Um, with that, then, my husband came home about an hour later. And the police were still here. And... I never saw anything like the look on his face. He was death warmed up, pale as a ghost. He didn't know what to say, what to do. All we could do was hug each other. So my son came home and he was shocked. He was so angry. I'd say if my other son had been here at that time, he would have killed him. He was so angry that this should happen and that he should do something like this. He couldn't believe it. I remember it because I was actually, I had a day off from school, from college. It was actually April Fool's Day, so I remember it very well. And I was out on the road with a friend of mine. We were just driving around. Uh, he had just gotten a new car, so well, a new banger. So we were out cruising around town, you know, acting really cool. And uh, I got the phone call from my mother say, crying, saying, can you come home? And I knew from that second exactly what had happened. Just from the phone call, she didn't say anything else. Do you ever get that feeling that you get it in the morning, something bad is going to happen, and you get it in your gut, and it goes up from your stomach into your chest? And that's, it's kind of a premonition. And that's how I felt, and that's what I thought, and that's kind of how it came to me, that, yeah, this is after happening. And that's the first thing I did. I turned to my friend and I said, listen, I know what's after happening here. And he said, no, I don't believe you. That's ridiculous. Because he had gone out for drinks with us not two weeks beforehand, you know. He said, like, he, know, he knows them. So he said, no, this is ridiculous. No, it couldn't be that. Come on, we go home. I'll, I'll tell you now, it's nothing like that. So he we went home and it turned out it was that. I think I remember coming in and saying, so I remember saying, where is he? Where is he now? Let me get my hands on him. I'll, I'll strangle him. You know, that that kind of instinctive thing. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that happens in a, a broken home where, you know, someone's beaten senseless by their parents morning, noon and night and they have to take it out on someone else. Or it happens if this like, I mean, Jesus, he had the best of everything. Like, You know, it, it's... It's so unbelievable. It, it, it completely. It's beyond belief.
he he was an only child for a long time, so he got the most of everything, you know. He got more than most for five and a half years. He got he was treated as an only child, spot rotten, you know. We were left here then, the four of us sitting in the room. What would we do? Where is he? Where have they got him? But luckily, we had very good friends, local friends around. A very good friend of mine who's since dead uh, worked for a solicitor. A detective sergeant lived around the corner who came around and was extremely good. I had a teacher from the school. It's amazing the way these things get out, but her sons happened to be policemen and she ran up to me. And, you know, um, they brought us down to the local police station where he was and we were able to bring him down cigarettes and see him for a few minutes. And I remember the policeman saying to him, tell him, tell him to, you know, to admit to what he's done. You go in and you tell him. And like a good mother, the good mother I was, I went in and I told him, I said, if you've done this awful thing, you better tell them. So he did. And he admitted it. And that was it. We rang around uh, the family and my brother rang friends of mine and they all came, I have to say. And and neighbours came, a lot of neighbours came in and they were, they were very good. A lot of people brought mass cards, said, what can we do? Uh, People brought in um, like a death sandwiches and uh, cake and they were extremely good, extremely good. But nobody could mend the hurt that we had. This awful, awful. I, I can't describe it. It's like being down a black hole and you can't get out. And you say, I'll never be the same again. Never, ever. It's early on a Saturday morning. The day is grey and wet. Marie and her husband leave home for their weekly visit to Arbor Hill Prison. Their son is almost 30 now. We went to bed that night, I remember, and we just kind of held each other. We didn't sleep, of course. And Every time I closed my eyes, I kept saying, no, this will be all gone in the morning. It's a bad dream. It's a bad dream. But the next day was worse than the day before. The next morning, he was remanded to uh, the Bridewell, and that was another horrific experience. Never been in a courtroom, and just seeing your son coming in with handcuffs on, you know, and being brought in and going down. It's like tele. It was like television, actually. It was like looking at a television show, and you were happened to be in this show. And he went down these steps under the judges, the judges box, down to wherever he was taken, and that was. I knew at that moment that was the last time he was going to ever come home. I knew that my family was broken up forever. The judge refused an application by the man's solicitor to have him released on bail. The man's parents and another middle-aged woman were the only people in the public gallery for yesterday's brief hearing. It was devastating, absolutely devastating. To think one day you have three children and then you have two. And the children felt the same, I'm sure. We didn't bring them to court because we left them at home. And um, they were good, but they were... My daughter was... Actually, she was quite strong. I couldn't believe how strong she was for a good few weeks. I'm afraid of what she, how hard she is. And I don't want to make her unhappy. And I think by not asking her... I know I'm avoiding the issue... But by not asking her, then I don't have to face it. I'm just not able to face it, to be honest. Um, 
I think she. I watch her. I make sure she's she's not psychologically damaged by it. If I thought she was, I I would seriously would get her help. But um, I want her to be happy. I think she deserves to be happy, and I don't want to be bringing up stuff that she doesn't want to talk about. She would say, you know, how is he? And um, she brings him back presents when she goes away. Like she brings T-shirts and. You know, or she'd buy him a CD, things like that. And she often said how she misses him. But I, as I said, like we talk in general about him, but we don't home in on anything. She knows what he did. I know what he did. Why do I need to keep saying, do you know what he did? Do you know what your brother did? I wouldn't do that to her. I don't think it's fair. The effects on the family are very... This is what I find most difficult, really, to think that... Uh, because my son was gone, had a very uh, serious relationship and it's broken up now. And I can't help thinking, although he said no, it's not the reason. I can't help thinking that could be the reason, could be one of the reasons. I mean, if your daughter brought home a, a lad that you thought was very nice and you found out that his brother was a sex offender, would you would you encourage the relationship? I don't think you would. No, these are the worries. And these worries will be with me. Now, we think, like, my husband's under the impression when my son comes out that these worries are going to float away. But they're not, because, he, you know, he still have the, the name and he'd still be a sex offender convicted of crime. It's very one of the most serious crimes. I mean, I think myself, if you went out and murdered somebody, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be as serious in the eyes of the state and the eyes of the public. If you could describe the looks on people's faces. I had a son who was full of life, absolutely. The life and soul of this house, my second son. And his whole personality changed. He went, he was a dead person, walking around. Someone asked me how I felt. And I remember saying to someone, you know, if if you had lost your brother, you could, you know, that that's it. It would be shocking and... You could live on with it and, you know, you'd miss him every day and whatever. But you can move on with your life. But this is kind of like, it's it's worse than that because the person's still alive and they're haunting you for the rest of your life. So it's like a, a long death sentence, you know what I mean? My sister doesn't talk about it at all. And, you know, that's her way of coping with it. But she's coming in with me um on the family visit. So that that's the extent the past six years of our conversations on, on the matter. But, you know, my sister is very like my brother, which is kind of, I think that's what made it harder. Like, they were buddies. My mother is quite realistic. Or my dad is, is extremely optimistic, and I, I don't think he realises the gravity of the situation. Um, I'm sure there was times that people would say, oh, no, look, he's after ruining his life, and they'd say, no, he won't, he's still young. When he comes out, he'll be grand, and he just won't talk to that person ever again. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he kind of ignores the gravity of the situation. I, 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 maybe he just can't cope with the gravity of the situation. Maybe that's what the problem is. He's a, he's a completely different person. Like I mean, he was someone who was hugely involved in everything in the community he was in 
the chair of the community councils, chair of the neighbourhood watch. He, he was in ran sports days, everything. And now he's afraid to walk outside the door for fear someone will see him. He wears his sunglasses driving down the road on a dull day. He, he's a completely different person. Right? He's afraid to go out. Before Arbor Hill Prison, her son spent over a year in Dunjom Centrin Mental Hospital. Maria's kept the poems he wrote there. Visions of heaven unfold before me, parting is hard and death is terrible. I seem to walk through a deep valley, far from the light of day and alone and helpless. The damps of death fall upon me. My ways are sinful, my voice is filled with deceit. Some are born to sweet delight, some are born to endless night. Every truth I tell is a lie. I'm deluding myself with every word. Every statement I make is debated. No one believes a word I say. I can't convince them of my sanity. I can't convince them of my insanity. I'm living in limbo in a quiet suburban hideaway. I figured that would be from when he lived at home. This would be a suburban hideaway, I suppose. It's a quiet area. You know, he he wasn't known by that many people because he was so quiet. People didn't kind of, he just walked in and out and nobody kind of minded him. He's, he's the type of person who could kind of blend into a crowd and you wouldn't notice him. A man who raped one schoolgirl and sexually assaulted another was jailed for 10 years yesterday. The attacker was detected by DNA samples found at the scene of the attacks. Because he pleaded guilty, there was no uh, jury or anything. It was just a hearing and um, victim impact reports were read out and... Um, I was called to the stand to give evidence. So up I went on the stand. And I was delighted in a way because I really wanted to say to those parents how how I would feel if it were my children. I wanted them to know how sorry we were, you know, and that we weren't just callous people who didn't care. So I got my opportunity and it was really like a weight lifted from me because I worried about those children all the time as if they were my own. So... um. I, I spoke about him as a child and how I couldn't understand how a lovely child that I had could do something like this and how sorry I was for what he had done and hoped that the people would find it in their heart to forgive. And I said, I don't expect you to forgive my son, but I hope that you'd understand that we are so very sorry and that we pray for them, which we do. And um, when I came off the stand and came down, the father of the little girl put out his hand and held my hand and then when the case was over and they sentenced him the mother and father and sister put their arms around us and hugged us and he said he felt so sorry for us he said I really feel so sorry for you he said they knew I needed that forgiveness and they knew that my husband needed it and and they were so charitable as to do that for us you know from the kitchen to the living room more framed photos on the walls one of Marie's daughter in a pink dress at a college ball, another of her second son with a loudspeaker protesting on a student march. There is only one recent photo of her eldest son. I suppose that was taken, um, that's taken in Arbor Hill. And um, I suppose that's about, will it be two years ago? Possibly two years ago now. And you can see he's a man now, you know, and that. When he was arrested, I went to look for some photographs and um, I found all the photographs cut up in his room into little pieces, tiny little pieces. Any recent photographs of himself. So I don't have any photographs of him around that, that time.
because he has them. He cut them up. The girl has described her attacker as thin and clean-shaven with dark hair. The detective said the sooner this man is caught, the better, and in the meantime, he urged parents to be vigilant with their children. The first attack happened in January, and I didn't know, obviously, that that attack had happened. I just heard something, it was a sexual assault, and, you know, you hear it, God, it's terrible, an awful thing to happen, and then you put it out of your mind because it doesn't really affect you. But um, in hindsight, he, he went to the doctor quite soon after that. Uh, about a day or two, he was sick. He was very sick, felt very, very sick. So obviously, it had affected him terribly. And he went to the doctor and he was out of work, I think, for a week. The second attack happened in March. I remember we were going out for my husband's birthday and he seemed to be isolating himself from, from the family at that particular time. And I remember asking him, are you coming? And he said, uh, do you want me to come? Do you want me to come to the meal? I said, of course I do. You know, I just wondered whether you wanted to come or not. And it was like, like when you think back on it, it, it was like, you know, he, he felt ashamed and he felt he wasn't part of the family anymore. And like a norm, normally he would say, oh, I'll be with you, you know, and we're all, aren't we all going? But he didn't. And he seemed, I remember sitting on the settee with him and um, I went out of the room because he was watching something that I wasn't interested in. And he said, would you not even sit in the room with me? So it was all coming from himself. His conscience were, was pricking and he he felt everybody was against him. Now, I didn't notice that, as I said to you, at that time, I didn't notice that, any of this. But later on, I when I thought back on it, I could see the pattern and I could see like he spent a lot of time in his room. We had got the attic converted for him and he was up there. He got his own line in and he got um, internet access himself. And I felt like he was, if he was going to pay for it himself, well, you know, he'd be much more <laughs> respectful towards it, I felt, you know. So this is obviously, and he only had the internet, a strange thing, from January. He got it on the, about the 1st or the 2nd of January, after Christmas. And this, all this happened between January and March. The detective who's leading the investigation appeals to anyone who may have seen the man or who might know him to come forward. He said the attack was carried out in broad daylight and someone out there must know something. He asked anyone with information regarding the day of the attack to contact the Garthi. That was my son and I never read that in the paper. Didn't even cross my mind that it was him. And, you know, people would say, like, you know, you're hiding these people. They're in your, you, you must know. I was a mother looking at, in the home and I did not know that was my son. I didn't have an idea nor a clue. And I wouldn't have sheltered him because I couldn't have because I had a daughter myself and, you know, there before the grace of God, you know, she could have been, somebody could have offended against her or he could have offended against her. Because so you were aware of that? Oh, yes, I was aware. I was aware of it, you know, and I mean, everybody in the area would have been aware of it. Do you, do you ever worry that people thought that maybe you were covering up for him? Never, no. I, I can't say anybody ever pointed the finger or any... It never even came up in conversation. I I thought it myself, maybe people thought that. But um, I always remember even saying to the detective when he came to the house, like, how could he? I, I wash his clothes. I look after him. You know, I didn't know. And he said, surely there must have been something on his clothes. And I said, no, nothing. So, like, even I, I, I didn't know. And nobody knew. Like, I remember at the time saying to my daughter, now be careful and, you know, watch yourself coming home and whatever. 
But you would say that to them, like, mind yourself going to school and, you know, they always went in a group and you'd say, like, stay in a group and don't be on your own or whatever until this person is caught. And then it's your son. And you say to yourself, like, you're, you're telling them the danger's out there when the danger was here all the time in your own home. How are you? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, I do. My hope for the future is that he he, he will continue on with his education as he's, he has been doing after over the course of the last couple of years. And he'll probably have a year or two to do when he comes out and he'll continue on with that, get his degree and um, hopefully make a new life for himself. I'd like him to meet somebody nice, you know, for him to be happy. For him to have a full and normal life. Hey, how's the phone? How are you? The Daily Call from Arbor Hill. Marie hands over the phone. The brothers talk. Is oh, is it? Is it's that? That's not a simultaneous course, is it? And how long will that take now to finish? Oh well, I suppose it's not too bad, but it's easier said than done, you know. I've no idea how he's going to cope, Ben. I don't know. I've been thinking about it quite a lot, and. I've actually been thinking about it since the day he went in. How How is he going to cope when he goes out? I've met him a couple of times and he was going on about, um, oh, well, when I get out, I'll get a job and, and hopefully I'll get a girlfriend and so on. And I'm just looking at him saying, buddy, it's it's not that simple. Like, the best of us can't even get a girlfriend. I, I don't see how you think you're going to get one, especially with your past. And, I mean, I couldn't see a wave of, jobs coming your way um, the only hope I have is that the probation services can place you in a job but I, I doubt it He's not going to come back and live in the family home? Oh god no he, he, no, he wouldn't live in the family home um, well like I mean he's near 30 now so like I mean he wouldn't be living in the family home anyway um, he's talking about going out and renting and the the rumour going through the mill is that he's going to ask me to go in with him. But I mean, I don't know whether I want to go in living with him at the best of times, you know. Even before all this, like, we didn't get on. So and now, you know, I try not to think about it, which is probably the worst thing you can do. You probably should face something head on if you can. But it's very hard to deal with it, deal with the idea of it. Will you go to the pub with <laughs> him? I, I, I doubt it. I mean, would you? You know? It's as simple as that. No, I probably wouldn't. How could, How can I say, like, you know, I come out with the lads, hey, John, this is uh, my brother. Remember we were talking about him there a while ago? Yeah, this is the guy. You know, you, you can't. I, I couldn't. I, there's certain people I can't, yes. There's two of my friends who came in to visit my brother with me. And I could bring him out with them. And they would go out. But out of obligation, they'd go out. And that's not the best way to meet someone. And they certainly won't end up being his best buddy. That's for sure. Do you ever say that to him? Well, we're going to have family visits soon, which are um, in preparation for for a parole um, date. So what they do is it's a more intimate. And they, maybe then is the... the time to bring it up and and I think he knows that we're going to bring it up because he's asked for somebody from the probation and welfare service to be there in the room with us when we're discussing it so 
we can actually feel free to speak about these things and he will have a kind of security blanket as in someone from the 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 probation service on his side as it were and our questions would come and maybe we could bounce off each other but I mean I don't think he has much of a future you know in in, in the sense of a, a job and, and getting back to reality I hope I'm wrong but I, I don't think I am Sunday afternoon, outside Arbor Hill. It is cold and getting dark. The long-awaited family day has just ended. It went well, it went very well. It was very hard and it was very emotional. And uh, we we had to ask um, questions nobody wanted to ask. And it was, it was it's, it's really tough to go in there, but it was really hard ask about the future and what his plans was and ask if he had realised that how difficult it's going to be to get a job. If he had realised the difficulty in getting forming a relationship with someone. Um, what was he going to do? Where was he going to live? Um, and was he going to re-offend all of these questions? very intense when it's all in the one place as well. I found it very emotional. <clears throat> um, I knew it was going to be difficult before we went in because um, the idea was that we would go in and we would um, explain to him the effect of um, what he did on the rest of the family. Um, the the wider effect on, on relations and friends and um it was a very good opportunity for my daughter. She was very, very upset when she went in and um, it was very tough on her. And it's the first time I actually saw the anger that, is, that she's been suppressing for all these years. And she asked a very sad question, like, what is going to happen when she has children of her own? Um, what are they going to say about their uncle? And does he realise that he won't be able to come near her children or anybody else's children. It's like she, she got off everything off her chest that she wanted to say she today. She didn't say an awful lot, but she, what she said was, yeah. you know, very pointed and, and it was obviously something that was worrying her. And um, I think when, when she said something, she, she left it very quiet. It was like it was an unfinished sentence and he was to fill in the blanks. Yeah. So like the silence yeah. of it was deafening mm. when she stopped talking. It made it very... Um, I put a full stop and an exclamation mark at the end of everything. And it made him think, and he answered the questions that she gave. And I think she felt better at the end than she, she certainly did than she was going in. But we asked him, what did he think of her, you know, and he said, well, she'd certainly grown up. You know, she hadn't changed, mm. but she she had grown up since, naturally, in, in six years, she would have changed slightly. And she she is a young woman now. But I feel... You know, I really feel sorry for her because I think it was traumatic for her, really traumatic. Mm. And for her to, to sit there, like, I knew she wanted to leave, but she didn't. She actually stayed. And, like, she had permission to leave at any time during it. But uh, fair play to her, she stayed on, and um, I'm very proud of her for that. Yeah. Another thing that struck home was the absolute realisation that there is nothing to support him when he leaves. There is nothing that the government have put in place for people 
when they leave, when sex offenders, when they leave prisons, there's no provision there. It's like they're just put on the side of the street and said, off you go now, don't do it again. This here now is the, um, the monkey puzzle tree that we used to come to when the children were small. And um, as you can see, there's a huge big trunk on the tree and um, they used to climb the big brother up the top and the little brother trying to follow him. And I was always terrified they'd fall, but no, they, my oldest son used to climb nearly up to the, almost up to the top of this tree. Weeks later, and, and the family visit is still on Marie's yeah, mind. In actual fact, as far as I can see, and from research I've done, there's nothing for prisoners. There's nothing for ordinary prisoners, but certainly sex offenders, there's less than nothing. And it is very sad to have to sneak out of a prison at maybe all hours of the morning with a black bag and given the, the address of a hostel. And that's, as far as I am, I am aware, that's the situation. My husband um, was very quiet on that day. Um, he listened intently to the rest of us speaking and he was looking forward to this family day. And I hope he got out of it what he was looking for, but his perception of what was said and my perception of what was said are two different things. Um, he was very happy that my daughter went in that because my son was very anxious for her to come in and he was delighted, you know, he thought this was great. But I listened to what she said and um, I was very sad. Very sad to think what she was thinking in her head all those years and couldn't bring herself even to tell me. Um, that's heartbreaking for a mother. I could see she wouldn't be happy for him to see her if she ever had children of her own, for him to be around her children. M my husband thinks that, you know, she said when she has children, he, he took the different meaning from it that, you know, he, he'd be able to come and see them. He didn't, not exactly that, but, you know, he thinks it could be worked through, you know, that she's saying that now and then we'll work through this and it'll be all right. You know, he, he wants everything, he wants everything to be all right. I know that there's going to be difficult times ahead and my son knows there's going to be difficult times ahead and I, I just try and... My husband thinks I'm negative when I say things like that to him, but um, I try and uh, make him grounded and realise that, you know, it's going to be difficult. And it's it's really the fear that you have inside you that never leaves you, never, ever. I mean, there isn't a day that I wake up that this doesn't flash through my head. If I get through five or six hours without it flashing through my head, that's a good day. But most days, you wake up with it in the morning and you go to sleep with it at night. And my other children, maybe they don't think about it as much as I do, but they certainly it certainly has affected their, their lives. And um, it's not fair, really, that they should be, you know, marked with the sin of this brother. But they are, and that's the way it is.